Hey guys, before we launch into this episode, we wanted to give a shout out and a thanks to yet another awesome review that someone gave us on December 18th, 2017. This is from Whimsy One Eye. The title is Feeling It. Five stars. After getting introduced to podcasts pretty recently, I obsessively listened to every episode of Stuff You Miss in History Class. Good choice, by the way. All the way back to 2008. I searched desperately for a show that had passionate hosts with an inclusive view of history, something extremely hard to find. I listened to another history podcast that said Christians invented morality. Uh. <laughs> All I can say is finding you ladies is like a Christmas miracle. Thank Hallelujah. you. Hallelujah, angels. <laughs> thank you so much and keep it up. We will, Whimsy One Eye, and thank you for reviewing us. If you leave us a review or a rating on iTunes, well, I guess just the review, we'll read it or send us an email. We love you. Bye. Well, into the episode. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. On March 15, 1895, a man in Tipperary, Ireland, brutally murdered his wife in front of her cousins, aunt, and father. When she refused to eat a piece of bread he was shoving into her mouth, he bodily hauled her to her feet and then slammed her to the ground. He held her down in front of the hearth, knee on her chest, and shouted at her, holding the burning end of a stick to her mouth, trying to jam the bread down her throat. He stripped her down to her chemise and stockings. As he held her down, her shift caught fire, and he scrambled back. Up to this point, other than a few exclamations of, Michael, that's your wife, nobody moved to stop him. Nobody hauled him off her prone body. Nobody intervened to stop this horrific treatment of a woman, their daughter, niece, cousin, by her husband. At the last, he grabbed the lamp off a nearby table and poured the paraffin oil on her body. According to the witnesses, those friends and family members who stood by watching her murder, she was already dead as he doused her in the oil, fanning the flames and ensuring that she'd never rise again. When her body was discovered a week later, buried in a shallow grave, the Royal Irish Constabulary arrested 11 people, the husband, Michael Cleary, among them. Needless to say, with six eyewitnesses, Cleary was convicted. Yet at the end of a lengthy trial, full of conflicting and confusing testimony, Cleary's charges were reduced from murder to manslaughter, and he was sentenced to just 20 years of penal servitude. The mitigating circumstances? He sufficiently convinced the jury that he believed his wife was a fairy changeling, and that setting her body on fire was the only way to save her. Michael Cleary's murder of his wife, Bridget Cleary, is a bizarre and horrifying crime. But it's also a case study of domestic violence, the urban-rural divide, and a simultaneously modern and superstitious Ireland, rife, according to the contemporary British presses at least, with barbarians unfit for self-governance. 
I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Sarah Hanley Cousins. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. There aren't many murders in Irish history as famous as that of the burning of Bridget Cleary. There's even a chilling children's rhyme that girls jump rope to. Are you a witch or are you a fairy? Are you the wife of Michael Clary? Twelve years into her marriage to Michael Clary, Bridget Clary got sick. She was a child-free, 26-year-old dressmaker with her own egg business. And February had been a particularly cold month, the coldest on record at the time in the United Kingdom, in fact. On Monday, March 4th, Bridget went out to deliver her eggs to customers. It was another bitterly cold day, although it was sunny and it had snowed the previous day. According to witnesses, she waited two hours for her father's cousin, Jack Dunn, but he never returned. Chilled, she went back home and tried to warm herself by the fire. She went to bed still cold that night and woke the next day complaining of a headache, shivering, and feverish. She stayed in bed for most of that week. The records we have about the events of the next 10 days come from court testimonies. 11 people were arrested in connection to Bridget's death, including her cousin, Johanna Burke, uh, sometimes called Han or Hannah. Burke turned Queen's witness in exchange for immunity and provided the main thread of the story as it has since been told. How much Burke played up or downplayed certain elements to protect herself or her brothers, all three of whom had, or all four of whom had been arrested as well, we simply cannot know. Bridget's older cousin, Joanna Burke, lived a very different life from Bridget. Joanna had at least four children in 1895, lived in one of the dilapidated Dobb and Waddle homes. She had neither the economic independence nor freedom of a childless marriage that Bridget had. It is entirely conceivable that her role in Bridget's death was very different from the master narrative that she wove for the magistrate in the courts. The story she told suggested that Jack Dunn, Bridget's father's cousin, known throughout Tipperary as an accomplished storyteller well-versed in fairy lore, was the prime instigator in the fairy tales about Bridget Clary. According to the court records, Patrick Boland, Bridget's father, walked the nearly nine miles from Bally Vadley to Feathered to fetch the local doctor on Saturday, March 9th. Bridget had been in bed sick since Tuesday. The doc still hadn't shown up by Monday, March 11th. Michael Clary made the trip from Feathered this time to summon the doctor. Still, the doctor did not show up. Michael walked again to Feathered on Wednesday, demanding that the doctor see his wife. While he was out, he stopped at Jack Dunn's and asked him to visit Bridget. Michael also stopped to ask Bridget's aunt, Johanna Burke's mother, Mary Kennedy, to visit when she could. Both stopped in that day, as well as Johanna Burke. The priest also stopped in, and upon seeing Bridget's condition, he administered the last rites, just in case. Bridget's cousin, aunt, and father's cousin, Jack Dunn, were all still there when the doctor finally came. He told them that she had a touch of bronchitis and left Michael with a vial of medicine. In his statement, Michael Clary insisted that the doctor was drunk when he came to the house. Though none of the other witnesses could attest to that, later the doctor was dismissed from his parish position for chronic drunkenness. Mm, okay. So it seems as likely as not. Right. But Michael Clary had perhaps already made up his mind about his wife, for on the second trip to summon the doctor, he apparently stopped at a local fairy doctor 
and procured some herbs to administer to his ailing wife. None of the witnesses could say whether he ever gave Bridget any of the doctor's medicine, but all were present when he gave her his own cure. And actually, uh, the police found the vial of uh, the doctor's medicine in the corner of a room. It had clearly been, like, tossed on the floor. Mm, um, and just never it administered. Full, never administered. Mm. Yeah. According to Johanna's testimony, Bridget was particularly agitated on Wednesday. She whispered to her cousin that she had a pain in her head and that, quote, Michael Clary was making a fairy of her and that he had tried to burn her three months ago. Johanna, her mother, Mary Kennedy, and Jack Dunn stayed at the Clary's until late, possibly even staying the night entirely. On Thursday, March 14th, Michael Clary again ventured out into the unseasonably cold March weather to seek the advice of fairy herbalist Dennis Ganey. Ganey would ultimately be arrested in connection with Bridget's death, though he never visited the house himself. Jack Dunn reportedly insisted that Ganey be consulted, that, in fact, the advice of the parish doctor was pointless because Bridget's case was one of fairy mischief. So when Michael returned, he had the instructions for turning the herbs he'd obtained into a cure. Mm. Quite a few of Bridget's relatives were in the house when Michael returned, as well as their neighbor, William Simpson, and his wife. Bridget's cousins, two of Mary Kennedy's sons, Patrick and James, showed up around 9 p.m. that night with bad news. Michael's father had passed away, and they were planning to attend the wake uh, in the, the next town over. For Jack Dunn, the bad news reaffirmed the fairies' role in Bridget's illness. According to lore, the fairies used tragedies to distract watchful family members from noticing the wasting of their changeling loved ones. Mm, Trixie. Cleary said to Dunn, quote, I have something here that will make her all right. And Dunn replied, quote, three days ago, you had the right to be beyond with Ganey, for the doctor had nothing to do with her. It is not your wife in there. You'll have enough to do to bring her back. This is the eighth day. And he, he says the eighth day because on the ninth day, it would have been too late, mm. according to Fairy War. My goodness. Mm -hmm. According to Dunn, Michael Clary locked the door and said, I think then it is time to give her this. This is Dunn's testimony. He had the cure, the herbs boiled in new milk, in a pint, which he held against his breast. The four of us caught her, and I had her by the neck. It was very hard on her to take it. Clary told me that after taking that, she should be brought to the fire. So we brought her to the fire. We raised her over it, but it did not burn her. I thought it belonged to the cure. He told me it belonged to the cure. And in Michael Clary's testimony, he actually says that Jack Dunn is the one who says that they should bring her to the fire because that would drive the fairy out. Mm. When Johanna Burke arrived that evening, just before 10 p.m., she was met on the road to the, to the house by the Clary's neighbor, the Simpsons. They found the front door locked and shouts and screams coming from inside. Someone yelled, take that, you witch, or I'll kill you. Eventually, Michael opened the door. Patrick Boland, Bridget's father, was in the kitchen, but everyone else was in the bedroom. Bridget was in her undergarments on the bed. And Jack Dunn was sitting beside her, holding her ears to keep her head still. Bridget's cousins, James and Patrick, were holding her arms, and her other cousin, William Kennedy, lay across her legs. Mary Kennedy, Bridget's aunt, watched from the door of the bedroom. Bridget was struggling against the men and against the bitter mixture that Michael was trying to spoon into her mouth. Over and over, Michael and Jack asked her, her if she was Bridget Clary, if she was Patrick Boland's daughter and Michael Clary's wife. Over and over again, she said, yes. Over the next few hours, the men carried her struggling and feverish body to the kitchen, 
and held her over the low but undeniably warm fire before carrying her back to the bedroom and forcing more of the mixture down her throat. They shouted at her, demanding that she affirm her identity again and again. They used a hot poker held against her face to force her to open her mouth and swallow. They threw liquids on her, possibly water and wine, but more likely urine. Three times, they poured the quote-unquote medicine into her mouth and made her swallow it. Repeatedly, they carried her over to the fire, holding her over it. As the Southern Star reported in 1895, when they held her over the fire, she had only her nightdress and chemise on. They repeated the questions, and she replied, I am Bridget Boland, daughter of Pat Boland and wife of Michael Clary, in the name of God. Three times appeared to be the charm. Jonna Burke testified that while Bridget was still noticeably agitated, understandably, right. the men seemed calmer. The power of three had satisfied them. She took three doses and she answered the demands as they held her over the fire. Michael seemed that evening, surrounded by her family and their neighbors, to accept that she was Bridget Clary. They put her back in her bed and her cousin Joanna and her aunt Mary Kennedy cleaned her up and put her in a new nightgown. She was broken, defeated, and put in her place by the men in her life. Once she was clothed again, the men returned to the bedroom, standing around the bed, and asked her to identify each of them. She complied. Satisfied, they all spoke consolingly to her, telling her that all would be well, she was safe now. And all seemed well. Bridget's male cousins and her father left to go to Michael Clary's father's wake. The Simpsons went home. Johanna Burke, her mother Mary Kennedy, and Michael stayed up late talking in the kitchen until Michael left early the next morning to fetch the priest. He requested that the priest administer a mass to Bridget that morning, for she'd had quite a trying night and could use the spiritual support. How sweet. Mm-hmm. Father Ryan rode to the Clary's house and said the mass. After the priest left, Johanna Burke told the course that there was an argument about a milk delivery. Burke provided the Clearies with their milk, including the new milk, which is the first milk after a cow's birth. Ooh, colostrum. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. Uh, that Michael had forced down his wife's throat the night before. As the Southern Star reported, Joanna testified that, well, Bridget asked her husband if I had been paid for the milk, and he said yes. I took the shilling out of my pocket and showed it to her. She took it in her hand, put it under the bedclothes, and gave it back to me. This was the last straw, evidently, to break the camel's back. In rural Ireland, women who rubbed a coin on their inner thigh, or more scandalously, on their vulva, did so to temporarily give the holder of that coin bad luck. I am going to remember that. Yeah. Rub it down. <laughs> the only witness to this action, however, was Johanna Burke. So again, we can't say whether it happened or not. And to that end, whether the subsequent argument and ultimate murder can be connected to that alleged curse. But that's the way that Johanna Burke told the story. As historian Angela Burke notes in The Burning of Bridget Cleary, though, even if she did rub the coin on her thigh, it needn't have had malicious intent. Quote, it could have been almost automatic, as when some Catholics make the sign of the cross on their bodies. But unlike an acceptable Catholic motion, this would have been associated with the pishogery that Bridget's family had shaken, scalded, and choked out of her the night before. Could you define pishogery for us? is like fairy intervention, fairy supernatural ha- happenings. Okay, so the, the acts that they were committing to her was pishogery. No, what she was being accused of was pishogery. Was pishogery. Okay, yeah. so the fact that they believed that she contained a fairy 
spirit or something yeah. was Pashogri. Yeah. Okay. Continue. Bridget dressed fully for the first time in over a week. She sat in the kitchen by the fire. Life seemed to have returned to normal. Friends and family circulated in and out of the house for the remainder of the day, laughing and joking and relaxing. As Angela Burke notes, even the role of Jack Dunn, the purveyor of fairy tales that effectively punished Bridget for being too independent, too wealthy, too childless in a world that resented women guilty of any of those crimes, was over. He had done his job and had gone home. It seemed to Johanna Burke, to the Kennedy boys, to their mother, to Patrick Boland, that it was over. But as we know, it was not. According to Johanna Burke, her husband spoke with her about rubbing the shilling to her leg. She got angry and said there was no Peshogs about her. There was talk about fairies, and Bridget Cleary said to her husband, Your mother used to go to the fairies, and that is the reason you think I am going to them. He asked her, Did my mother tell you that? And she replied, She did. She gave two nights to them. I, this is uh, Joanna talking, I made the tea and offered Bridget a cup of it. Her husband got three bits of bread and, and jam and said she should eat them before she took a sip. He asked her three times, Are you Bridget Clary, my wife, in the name of God? She answered twice and ate two pieces of bread and jam. When she didn't answer the third time, he forced her to eat the third piece of bread, saying, Eat it or down you'll go. And down she went. Johanna Burke went on to describe the grisly scene, quote, he flung her on the ground, put his knee on her chest, caught her by the throat and forced the bit of bread and jam into her mouth, saying, swallow it. Is it down? Is it down? I called out to him, Mike, Mike, don't you see tis Bridgie is in it? Meaning that it was Bridget Cleary, his wife, who was there and not a fairy. He suspected that she was a fairy and not his wife at all. He stripped his wife's clothes off except the chemise and got a blazing stick out of the fire. She was lying on the floor and he put the red stump across her mouth. My brothers and I said we would smash the door and go for the peelers or the police, but Clary repeated the door would not be opened and no one would leave the house until his wife came back. When he put the lighting stick near her mouth, he called on her to answer her name three times. He said he would burn her if she didn't answer. She answered him, but the answer didn't satisfy him, and he got a tin of lamp oil and poured it over her. In a few minutes, I saw her in a blaze. The house was filled with the fumes of oil and burning. When I looked down in the kitchen, I saw the remains of Bridget Clary on a sheet. Bridget Clary wasn't the only woman to be murdered by her husband in 19th century Ireland. The Freeman's Journal re reported on a wife murder trial in Dublin not two months after Bridget Clary's death. 34-year-old Bridget Bolton was killed by her husband William in their home on 15th May 1895. The coroner hypothesized that her neck was snapped, resulting in instantaneous death. Her body also had lacerations, one on the inside of a breast, possibly caused by a kick, but more likely by some instrument, he struck her with it, and another on her temple. As their daughter Ellen, aged 11, testified, the two were always quarreling, and her father was in the habit of beating her mother, and that her mother drank heavily occasionally, but that her father constantly drank. William Bolton was punished three times for ill-treating Mrs. Bolton, and he was, according to little Ellen, in the habit of accusing Ellen's mother of being dishonest. Ellen also told the court that her father had long since stopped supporting her and her mother. Even when they were separated, Mrs. Bolton gave her husband food and supported his drunken, useless ass. Mm. The previous Christmas, Ellen witnessed her father grab her mother, twist her arm, and then break it across his knee. Oh, God. 
This was the most recent assault he'd been punished for. He got two months imprisonment, though Mrs. Bolton got a month herself because she refused to prosecute her abuser. Jeez. Domestic violence was all too common in 19th century Ireland. As Diane Urquhart shows, surveys of Irish national and regional papers in the 1870s reveal weekly cases of wife beating in the magistrates' courts. And criminal records from 1853 to 1920 include over 1,000 appeals from Irishmen convicted of domestic violence. Wife beating in Ireland was widespread and brutal. Wife murder was a more likely result than women being granted a divorce. Most familiar with modern Irish history are probably aware that divorce was illegal in the 26 counties, the Irish Free State from 1922 to 1949, and the Republic of Ireland thereafter, until a referendum on the Constitution was passed in 1995. But prior to Irish independence, it was still difficult for women to secure divorces and leave bad marriages. Though divorce was technically legal... Ireland did not benefit from the 1857 Divorce and Matrimonial Clause, which moved most United Kingdom divorce proceedings from a parliamentary appeal to the standard court system. It allowed women to sue for the divorce when there was evidence of adultery and desertion for at least two years. Certainly, obtaining a divorce, even through the court system, was no walk in the park for a British woman, and divorce proceedings were often the hottest news in the gossip rags, airing the most intimate of dirty laundry of middling and upper-class couples for all to read. Still, while women in the rest of the United Kingdom had at least some recourse for getting out of bad marriages, the new law was not applied to the overwhelmingly Catholic Ireland. While the Catholic hierarchy did not officially oppose the new legislation, British lawmakers apparently deemed the potential opposition from the emancipated Catholics too high to try and apply to the law, apply the law to Ireland. Thus, at the end of the 19th century, divorce requests continued to be submitted to the Irish Parliament for consideration. Parliamentary granted divorces usually required three separate steps. Divorce, a mensa et thoro, to allow separation so that the parties could live apart but could not remarry, a civil action brought by a husband to claim damages from his wife's lover in the common courts, popularly known as crim con, essentially adultery, and a private act of parliament to grant divorce a vinculo matrimonii. These suits were immensely expensive, costing between 200 and 5,000 pounds, and certainly out of the realm of possibility for women like Bridget Bolton or Bridget Clary. And significantly, the parliamentary process was particularly biased in favor of men. Women were most likely to lose custody of their children, have their character slandered in public, and because all of their property became their husbands upon marriage, lose virtually everything. The very first case of divorce granted to an Irish woman was in 1886, approved by Westminster on the grounds of domestic abuse. This set a precedent in the waning years of the 19th century, but the barriers to the average Irish woman continued to be insurmountable. Most had to stay with their abusive husbands, were economically and socially bound into unhappy and painful marriages. The system was sympathetic to wife-beating husbands. They were given passes when they could articulate how they were correcting their wives. And women who stayed with these husbands were credited with trying to make their marriage work. Some paid the ultimate price. And some husbands even got away with wife murder. 
Such was the case of William Bolton, despite evidence given by his daughter that there was a history of violence, that she had other marks on her body indicating an altercation, and that he was in the house when she fell and ran out of the house shortly thereafter. The other witnesses, including other boarders in the slum tenement where the Boltons were living, could not say whether her fall, which broke her neck, was an accident or if he pushed her down the stairs. And so the jury came back to say that there was not enough evidence to indict him. Michael Clary did not have the benefit of no witnesses to his murder. Bridget's cousins and father were all in the house watching him kill her. And yet Michael Clary was the only husband in 19th century Ireland to get a more lenient sentence based on his professed belief that the woman he killed was not his wife, but a changeling. It'd be easy to dismiss Michael Clary as crazy. By modern standards, perhaps he would have been diagnosed with temporary insanity under the circumstances. Um, all accounts suggest he had been walking all over Tipperary, the Tipperary con- countryside, fetching the parish doctor, the priest, and family members to look in on his wife. He hadn't slept much in the week or so before he doused his wife in lamp oil. He listened to the assurances of local wise men, fairy men like Jack Dunn and Dennis Ganey, that the symptoms were of someone fairy touched. Maybe he was convinced, or convinced himself, that his wife was a changeling. And per fairy lore, the final cure was fire. Maybe he truly believed enough in fairies to see one in his sick wife. One of the most interesting elements of the case, though, isn't just this question of Michael Clary, his crime, or his fairy defense. Rather, this case highlights the division of rural and urban Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Michael Clary's case rests on a belief by the jurors, judge, and the police that the people of Tipperary believed in fairies. There's ample evidence in the case presented in earlier cases and in the oral histories taken of Ireland after the famine to suggest that in most places in rural Ireland, some semblance of belief in the fae persisted throughout the 19th and early 20th century, despite, or at least alongside, Catholicism's revival and restructuring at the same time. But most likely, as Angela Burke evidences in The Burning of Bridget Clary, that belief was very limited. In most cases, the fairy tales functioned as morality tales, stories to define social norms and warn those who were transgressing. Instead of the ardently superstitious, Burke argues, rural Ireland was more of a mix of convenient belief in the fae, particularly when tragedy struck. An illness that suddenly took an infant or child could be blamed on fairies, planting a changeling. Locals spoke of women and teen girls taken into the fairy forts that dotted Ireland's landscape to live among the fairies, when in reality, they fled to London or Dublin, seeking any life other than that of domestic violence and impoverishment in rural Ireland. Um, Can I interject? Forgive me if this is in here later. Um, that this reminds me of that scene in Outlander where they find the baby in a like a tree stump mm-hmm. or something yeah. and she wants to rescue it and, yeah. and he's like, you don't you don't understand that right. this is something that the mother actually needs because this baby is going to die anyway. Yeah. And if she believes that she did what she could to bring her baby, quote unquote, her real baby back from right. the fairies, um, you know, that's doing something for her. So we have to leave this baby here. Yeah. And a lot of the folklore and customs that we know about rural Ireland are very similar to those of Scotland Mm -hmm, and particularly mm -hmm. the Highlands. Right. Yeah. Lore lived on in Ireland largely until the Gaelic revival because of the fairy women and fairy men. 
wise, older, usually disabled individuals who prescribed herbal cures, told the stories of the of Ireland's rich mythological past, and provided guidance to those dealing with the diseases and symptoms lore associated with fairy interference. Bridget Cleary's cousin, or her father's cousin, Jack Dunn, who helped Michael Cleary administer the herbs boiled in new milk to Bridget, was one such individual. Though not the fairy man that Clary went to for herbs, that was Dennis Ganey and his wife, Mm -hmm. Dunn was a respected orator, known for his storytelling skill, and made a living at that. These individuals weren't the sole authorities in Victorian Ireland. The agents of Irish modernity were increasingly visible in all corners of the island. University-trained doctors, the Royal Irish Constabulary, a modern police force created in 1822 to surveil the provinces of Ireland, and, of course, the expanding legion of Catholic priests that was throughout the island. Uh, These various entities worked in concert in opposition to control and administer to the people of rural Ireland to replace and preserve the heritage of fae and superstition. Charles Dickens and countless other scholars of the Victorian period argued that literacy and Victorian literature killed the superstitious belief in fairies in the United Kingdom. Generally, the rise of print media is associated with a modernization of the middling and educated Anglophone world. But as Caroline Sumter evidences, literacy and accessible printed materials actually served to reaffirm and spread fairy lore. Lady Augusta Gregory, uh, William Butler Yeats, Lady Wilde, and... Who's Lady Wilde? Uh, Oscar Wilde's mom. Oh, okay. Uh, And in the 1930s, the Folklore Commission of the Free State of Ireland, among others, collected the mythologies, legends, and fairy tales of Celtic Ireland. They preserved those stories in a world otherwise designed to wipe out pagan superstition. They published the collected lore in journals, poetry collections, books, children's magazines, and shillings monthlies, consumed extensively by the increasingly literate public. So this obviously isn't to suggest that reading about fairies and children's books means that adults grow up to believe they're sick, wives are changelings. Like, right, we're right. We're not trying to make yeah. that. Um, that's not the correlation that Sumter's making, and that's not the correlation that we're making. Instead, what is interesting is that the facilitators of the Gaelic revival, mm-hmm. the people who preserved the cultural heritage of fairy lore, were upper class, educated, largely urban elite Victorian men and women. Hmm. They were not remotely like the people they interviewed to collect these stories. And in their romantic narratives of the quaint Celtic fringe folk, they propagated a particular vision of rural Ireland. Illiterate, superstitious, backwards barbarians. Michael Clary's heinous crime and his insistence that he did so because he believed she was a fairy was further evidence for the British newspaper reading public that the Irish were unfit to rule themselves. For the jury that accepted Clary's tale of changelings and ring forts, of course, this country bumpkin believed his wife was a fairy. That's just par for the course. Right. Take Michael J. McCarthy, a Trinity-educated Irish lawyer known mostly for his anti-papism writings in an increasingly Catholic Ireland. In 1901, McCarthy wrote, quote, I sincerely pity all the people connected with these tragedies, but I pity still more intensely the many peasants who border upon, if they do not firmly entertain, the beliefs expressed in these cases. This latter feeling is the gadfly which urges me on, as it urged Socrates of old, to do what little I can to crush out those remnants of savagery, which should by this time be extinct as the snakes in this so-called island of saints." 
But this was not the backwards group of bumpkins one might have assumed from the reports coming out of Ireland in the newspapers and um, from someone like Michael J. McCarthy. Joanna Burke testified that she told Bridget she didn't believe in fairies Hmm. and certainly didn't believe that Bridget was a changeling. Michael Clary was a literate craftsman. He apprenticed as a cooper in Clonmel, the sort of big city, relatively speaking, about 16 miles from Bridget's hometown of Ballyvadley in County Tipperary. He met Bridget there when he was working, and she was apprenticing in a dressmaker's shop. And Bridget spent four years in Clonmel learning her craft and bought a sewing machine of her own to take back to Ballyvadley. Both Bridget and Michael would have been national school educated, which certainly didn't include fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Um, Bridget perhaps all the way up to the official leaving age uh, of 14, after which she took up her apprenticeship. They married in the mid-1880s, and for the first four years of their union, she lived in Ballyvadley with her ailing mother and elderly father, and he lived in Clonmel, visiting her on the weekends. After her mother passed away, Bridget, Michael, and Bridget's father, Patrick Boland, applied for and were granted tenantship of the only new-build laborer's cottage in Ballyvadley. Michael moved in and started making barrels for the local dairies. This took some smart finagling. Those government-subsidized housing projects were to be reserved for farm laborers, and only Bridget's elderly father qualified. They used his technical designation to secure the finest home in Ballyvadley. As a pair, Bridget and Michael Clary were quite well off compared to their neighbors and family members. Bridget's dressmaking income and egg sales set her starkly above the other women in her community, including her cousin, Johanna Burke, the Queen's witness in the case against Michael Clary. Clary. Michael Clary. Michael Michael Clary. Clary. It seems unlikely that an educated, skilled, smart man like Michael Clary bought into fairy lore. Mm, That's a good point. Right. Angela Burke suggests that his disheveled mental state, worry over his ailing wife and the feverish things she was saying, lack of sleep and adequate food intake. I think he lost like 40 pounds or something really oh ridiculous in, and, this, in this week of her illness. And his father had just died. And his right. father just died, yeah. yeah. And he was walking all over Tipperary in search of help for Bridget. Mm-hmm. All of this was exploited by resentful right. and superstitious family members. Right, right, right. It was Jack Dunn who suggested that a fairy cure was needed and not to heed the doctor. The doctor's drunkenness probably didn't help to inspire confidence. Give that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Cleary's relative prosperity in a deeply impoverished region right. certainly didn't help their situation. And there's also the possibility of some underlying currents of resentment. After all, Bridget wasn't merely a rising above her own kin. Her economic ventures and the couple's childlessness, while freeing economically, were likely a source of strain, possibly even resentment, between Bridget and Michael Clary. Undoubtedly, Michael blamed his wife for the failure to conceive a child. That was standard practice in this time. Bridget Clary's story is also unique in that while she wasn't the only suspected fairy murdered in 19th century Ireland, she was the only adult. Stories about children being taken by the fairies, babies dying suddenly of wasting sickness, or children murdered by terrified parents, were mental leaps that allowed people to exist in a world of high infant mortality, poverty, and sickness. But Bridget was a grown woman. The continuous accusation that she was a changeling is the strangest and most suspicious element of the case. And that really, that makes a lot of sense to me because everything I've ever heard about 
everything you've ever heard about about changelings and and fairies um, affecting humans is about babies and right. children. Yeah, D- children who were born disabled or sick or di- you know babies who were wasting away. Yep, that was blamed on. Well, I had a healthy baby. The fairies took it and gave me this changeling, right. and that helped people to understand make sense of the fact that they were losing children. Right. Sir William Wilde, Oscar's fa- Oscar Wilde's father, was a doctor who studied both fairy folklore and cataloged the illnesses of his patients in the Irish countryside. The 19th century newspapers are also peppered with stories of children fairy struck. Uh, the Morning Post reported in 1836 that, quote, Anne Roche, an old woman of very advanced age, was indicted for the murder of Michael Leahy, a young child, by drowning him in the flesk. This case turned out to be a homicide committed by the delusions of the grossest superstition. The child, though four years old, could neither stand, walk, nor speak. It was thought to be fairy struck. Mm. Disturbing, deeply sad, and complicated in their own right, the murder of children who were suspected of being changelings is consistent with a fairly standard fairy lore. Changelings almost universally took the place of children. And there are no other cases of adults being murdered for being a suspected changeling. As we've already suggested, fairy tales were, by and large, allegorical, or morality tales, not hard and fast facts. Angela Burke has some really fascinating conclusions about this case, which we won't recount here. I definitely recommend that you pick up a copy of her book, um, which is an excellent study of rural 19th century Ireland. Um, I assign it to my undergrads regularly. It's really a great read and pulls together so much of what makes Irish history fascinating. Mm -hmm, For sure. Threads about gendered political, social, economic, and religious history that converge in this really horrific murder of an independent woman. Right, right. What is most disturbing to me in this story is the bystander element. Joanna Burke was not the only one present as Michael Clary murdered his wife. According to the court testimonies, Patrick and James Kennedy were napping in Bridget's father's room, not far from the commotion in the kitchen. I mean, these are, these are not large houses, right? No, these, right. Are, these are probably you know, 500 square feet. Um, not far from the commotion in the kitchen by any means, uh, if they were even really sleeping there. And Mary Kennedy was sleeping in the Clary's bed. Again, not far from the kitchen. But Patrick Bolin, Joanna Burke, and William Kennedy were all in the kitchen when Michael attacked his wife for the final time. Hmm. Joanna says she cried out, telling him to stop, but made no move to stop him. And William, a strapping and tall 21-year-old man, did nothing to pull the violent man off of his cousin. Gosh. Perhaps they were stunned by the outburst. Perhaps they, in some deeper part of their subconscious, believed that she was a fairy. Perhaps they wished her ill. Everyone behaved so bizarrely, so unfeelingly, on that terrible Friday night. When Michael stood over his wife's burned body, he told the reportedly shocked family members present that it was done now and that Bridget could come to the local fairy fort on a white horse and that they had to be there to free her from the fairies with an iron knife. Patrick Kennedy helped Michael Clary bury his wife in a shallow grave wearing nothing but a sack over her head and her black stockings. He convinced a bewildered William Kennedy to go with him that very night to wait outside the ring fort for three nights. Surely, he told them, she would appear by the end of the three nights. And of course, she did not appear. She was dead. 
first shoved hastily into an 18-inch hole, and later buried quietly by the Royal Irish Constabulary in Clonan under the cover of darkness on Wednesday, March 27th, a charred corpse. In early investigations, people like Joanna Burke swore to the local constables that Bridget got up and walked out of the house when she was put to the fire. Most perpetuated Clary's delusion slash cover story. As early as Saturday the 16th, there were rumors of foul play regarding Bridget's disappearance. William Simpson, their neighbor, went to the police on Monday, March 18th, and when the constables went for a second round of questions, Joanna Burke changed her tune and gave a new statement. On March 21st, those connected to the murder were arrested. When the Royal Irish Constabulary found her body on March 22nd, they'd already arrested 11 people. Johanna Burke, her mother, Mary Kennedy, her sons, William, Patrick, Michael, and James Kennedy, Bridget's father, Patrick Boland, Jack Dunn, the herb doctor, Dennis Ganey, a 16-year-old boy who'd been present at the milk fiasco, and of course, Michael Clary. Ganey was soon released when it was clear that he had no direct involvement in the murder. Johanna Burke, as we've said, turned Queen's witness and was granted immunity from prosecution. Damn. Mm-hmm. that's That was a big deal because she was like right in it the she entire time. The time. Wow. The jury, after three days of testimonies and nearly a month of evidence collecting by the RIC and just 40 minutes of deliberation, Ugh. returned with guilty verdicts for all nine remaining prisoners. Which makes sense. Yeah. They strongly recommended Patrick Bolin, Michael Kennedy, and Mary Kennedy to mercy. They found Patrick Kennedy most guilty, besides Michael Clary, for his role in the disposal of the body. He got five years imprisonment. Jack Dunn got three years, less than the five the judge thought he deserved on account of his age. William and James Kennedy got 18 months, and Patrick Boland and Michael Kennedy got six months imprisonment, and Mary Kennedy got none. About Michael Clary, the judge delivered quite a pronouncement. Quote, The short of the matter was that he burned his wife alive. I do not know that these medicines the prisoner procured or those herbs were really intended for the cure. But the judge also could not say whether or not Michael Clary was mad because there hadn't been a lengthy inquest into that line of thought. All the same, the judge continued, quote, the fact that the prisoner inflicted upon the woman whom he swore before the altar to cherish and protect that he took her life away in what was generally regarded the most cruel and painful of human afflictions by burning her alive. Dead she was not at the time he threw the paraffin oil on her, and his wicked hand sent her to another world in the very prime of her life, a young woman who confessed to him her affections and her life, and he most wantonly and most cruelly and most wretchedly betrayed her. All the same, the judge found himself doubting the clarity of the case enough that he stopped short of the extreme sentence. Mm. He did not doubt Michael Clary's guilt, but he did doubt Michael Clary's sanity in the case. Mm -hmm. And so he remanded Clary to 20 years penal servitude. According to the Irish examiner, during the delivery of the sentence, the prisoner, Michael Clary, wept bitterly. He seemed much agitated and left the dog wringing his hands. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You should feel better. Yeah. He killed his wife. Yeah. So, I hear, I haven't seen it yet, but I hear that the podcast lore, which people are, like, crazy about, Obviously, and they have yeah. this new television show, and they mm-hmm. did an episode on Bridget Cleary. Yes. Okay. So they did. I watched it just to see what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I guess there's, uh, I mean, probably those of you who are listening, I mean, the reason we kept saying, you know, Patrick Boland, Bridget's father, or Mary Kennedy, her aunt, was because there are so many people in the story. There's a lot of people. It's it's really easy to get them all confused. Yeah, to get them all confused. And everyone's named Michael or Patrick. It's like, God, Catholics, come up with different names. It is true, yes. Um, (laughs) So the thing that Lore does that I didn't like so much is that they distilled it down to, like, four characters. Mm. Bridget, Michael, Johanna, and um, Jack Dunn. Mm. Yeah. So you don't have, like, the Dennis Ganey character. No. They actually made Dennis Ganey and Jack Dunn be the same person. Oh, that's not good. No, I didn't like that so much. Um, But I understand that, I mean, they say this is based on a true story, but they don't say that these are the facts of the case. Okay. So is that, I mean, I've never listened to, well, I've listened to one episode of Lore and it was not my cup of tea, so I've never listened to it since. Um, But does it purport to be inspired by and then fictionalized or actual, like a historical I think they're historical events that they take liberties with. Okay. Uh, And also, I mean, the one thing that I did sort of like, but not so much, they made some connections, like the way that we do when we, when I wove Mm -hmm. in the story of divorce and rape abuse and all that. Um, But they went with, um, for example, strong women and strong other, another case of strong woman is Annie Oakley. What? That doesn't make any sense at all. Because because Bridget, Bridget Cleary, Cleary was like was, independent and was making more money than her husband. There's this other case of a woman who made more money than her husband, and he didn't kill her. That's t- two completely completely I different know. cultures. Yeah. And Annie Oakley was a badass, bitch and I love. I, I when I was a little kid, I had a biography of Annie Oakley like yeah. that my grandpa had given me, and I read it like a hundred times. So I'm like all about Annie Oakley. Yeah. But that's a really bad comparison. It is, and that's it. Felt uh, it felt. Like they cast their net a little too wide. Yeah, that's yeah. that's. I mean, I'm, there were good pictures to use and like video footage of Annie Oakley, but mm-hmm, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you should make that part of your TV episode. I don't know. I don't yeah. want. I don't want to like criticize other podcasts too much because they work really hard and good for them for getting their Amazon Prime deal. Or whatever. yeah, yeah. But I think that there's something. I don't know about all of the episodes in this series, but I know in um, the the one that we're gonna do on the story of Celia. Um, the slave who murdered her master. There is certainly a thread that I feel, and it's one of the reasons I stopped listening to lore, that um, there are kind of two different kinds of podcasts that treat these kinds of crimes, and mm-hmm. that's historical podcasts and true crime podcasts. Right. And when a story like this is treated as a true crime, it's all salacious details. It's yeah. all, you know, it, it's simplified down into kind of the most... Um, uh, what am I trying to say? It, exciting. Exciting, almost fetishistic yeah. um, ways possible. And so it doesn't matter whether there was a Dennis Ganey and a Jack Dunn. Jack Dunn right. Because they're serving the same function when you're looking at it from that point of view. Right. But when you're looking at it as a historian, that's really critical that yes. there were these all of these many, many, many different people, all of whom had the power to make different decisions. Right. Um, and, and so when we talk about Celia, I think it's, like a case like Celia's is really dangerous to look at it fetishistically or in this true crime way. I think it's really important to have that full context that we have. I I hope we have presenting in this episode on Bridget Clary that, um, that makes that, that murder make sense. Otherwise we really can't categorize it as just another story of 
a, a man killing his wife. Right. No. And I think that, you know, I, we opened it up with, hey, this is a man who killed his wife. Yeah. And then kind of got off for it. There's all these mitigating, you know, complicating mm-hmm, factors. Mm-hmm. But he still murdered his wife. Right. Right. So, yeah. It, you know, I mean, it's a really complicated case because, I mean, he it's horrifying that he had his sentence lightened but at the same time it does make a certain amount of sense that the judge took into consideration his behavior was so irrational yes that it makes sense that he was insane or temporarily insane or at or... least his behavior in the way that he and the other witnesses were all family members right except mm-hmm. for william simpson who wasn't there for the murdering part um for the the milk forcing down her throat part um so the the people who are most tied most closely to this case Mm -hmm. they told a particular story Mm -hmm. that got most of them off with fairly light sentences if they in fact worked together colluded or someone else did most of the murdering right or if they tricked you know michael cleary into killing his wife um the story got most of them off right yeah yeah um so it's and they played on you know this is a this is a time period when the british presses they gobbled this story up because right. it just confirmed exactly. everything that they had been saying about the Irish for years, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, just like the Irish use the example of the British uh, administrators having sex with teen boys, teen right. Irish boys, mm-hmm. to undermine British moral authority. Right. This is like, well, let's have a field day, guys, because these superstitious these barbarians, Irish country bumpkins, exactly. who clearly cannot be. Um, cannot be trusted to kind of like rule themselves. Like they're obviously morons. Yeah. Um, And it makes me think too, that, you know, the talking about parallels that you can draw. I, I certainly don't think of Annie Oakley, but what I do think of is other um, imperial powers and the people that they conquer, right. The people that they try to overcome. Um, This was, this kind of superstition was also, or the, these, um, accusations of being foolish and superstitious and savage and barbarians was used against Native Americans. Yes. When they clung to their mm-hmm. cultural beliefs about all sorts of different kinds of things. Certainly not, they wouldn't have called them fairies, but they were maybe analogous kind of characters. Right. Um, or I'm sure that there are similar situations in African oh, absolutely. tribes and in African regions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the parallel that I would see is how yeah. that is used, how those cultural practices and beliefs are kind of used against people. It's very interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. And I think of all the all the accounts out there that are out there, even better than obviously what we could do in, in an hour on this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, Angela Burke's book, Burning Bridget Cleary, it, mm-hmm. it covers so much. Um, and I, what I really love about it is that she does what Irish historians love, or what, what is sort of integral to Irish history is the land, the question of the land, because mm-hmm. the fairies, the fairy forts... Um, right. British intervention and the presence of these modernizing authorities. Um, it's always about the land mm-hmm. in 19th century Irish history. And she pays particular attention. She like describes the scenery and mm. how, you know, what the walk would have been like for yeah. uh, Michael and Patrick Boland to fetch the doctor and to visit family. And so, I mean, you get a, you get a real sense from her account mm. just how much Michael was walking, how he lost like 40 pounds oh, um, wow. in a week. It's one thing to say he walked to get the doctor. It's another thing to say, like, this is what that walk was yeah. like. He and walked this is over how long hills yeah. 
nine miles of them to yeah. like three times in one week, back and forth, 18 miles in one day yeah, yeah. to get the doctor. And he wasn't eating. Of course, they lost 40 pounds. That's right. the way to do it. Yeah. It's their, you know, fairy madness, fairy it, craze madness is yeah. the best diet. And it adds some some weight to the argument that he was not well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, he was certainly not well. The answer is, we don't know the answer of, did he really believe in fairies? Probably not. Yeah. Um, That's really fascinating. That a case that centers on fairies. Yeah. People, all the people involved may not have ever actually believed that that was true. Yeah. They may have all just been kind of in this. And then it comes back to, she's this woman with too much independence. Right. And it's really about, I mean, it's not Mary Kennedy or Johanna Burke who are in the room holding her down while they shove things it's in the her men. mouth. It's the men. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely the men. And the women don't intercede. No. And they don't, because, you know, why doesn't she have to have children when I'm saddled with all these children? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what will happen to me if I try to go over there and tell Michael Clary not to perform his, you know, husbandly right, right. over his wife's body? To control her body, um, yeah. I'm going to get yeah. beaten or I'm going to get murdered. Yeah pretty intense yeah it's really interesting how um how people don't do what we think would be the right thing right and how they justify it to themselves yes in and and in ways that i think we should take seriously not just that they were um cowardly or that they were or whatever right, right. but that they faced really and this is something that we're going to talk about in the celia episode as well but that they faced serious personal moral quandaries um, between their own personal safety and their own personal well-being and doing the quote-unquote, what we believe now, the quote-unquote right, right thing. thing. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah, yeah. And that kicks off our crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you like true crime, this will be sort of up your alley. We've got four but we're going to give you more than, more than you bargained for. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. You can get our show notes for the reading, including a link to Angela Burke's book on our website, digpodcast.org. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at dig underscore history. Um, if you're not already, that's where we, you know, do fun things. Also, if you're a super fan, um, <laughs> contact us because we, we have this great new um, exclusive facebook group where we'll yeah, give yeah, yeah. you insider insights and we'll post things that we wouldn't post on our normal mm-hmm. social feeds because yeah. only the special belong there yeah and it's a great place to if you're interested in one of our episodes and you want to ask us questions or you want to talk more about the issues that we raised in an, a particular episode please come join us there because we would love to talk more about any of these subjects with you yeah oh i i did think of one thing um a couple people have mentioned to us like gee willikers it would be nice if you had transcripts um and i just want to reiterate that we do we have transcripts for all of the new all the dig episodes um so if you prefer to read or if you want to assign this in your class and you want them to have something to refer back to please um go to digpodcast.org and you can find all of our transcripts there thanks for listening so for all the women historians here at Dig, I'm Averill. And I'm Sarah. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. Thanks for listening. Um, that was my toothbrush.
that I threw away because it stopped working. Mm -hmm. And then one night at like three o'clock in the morning, it was in the trash and it started vibrating (laughs) so loudly and it wouldn't shut off. And so I grabbed it. (laughs) That's so scary. Shoved it. No, I broke it in half. It was still vibrating. (laughs) And then I shoved it under a bunch of blankets and closed the door so that we couldn't hear it vibrating. So it was a ghost. It still works now. That's really weird. <laughs> it was the scariest thing in my life. And I'm afraid to throw it away. Like it's something's happening. Yeah. It's, it's possessed. possessed. Yeah. It is possessed. I need to get an exorcism on that. Fake toothbrush. Dead toothbrush. Marissa just really wants to drink while we record, even though it's 9 a.m. Yeah. Well, she's crazy. <laughs> It'd be easy to dismiss Michael Clary as crazy. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be a magician. <laughs> While he was out, he stopped at Jack Dunn's and asked him to vidget. Vidget, vidget. And oh, what? Penal servitude. Penal. Sorry. <laughs> I can't help myself. I know. <laughs> <laughs>